Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-415 of the Run Run Live podcast. Today we have a great conversation with Kate, who is the CEO of 1% for the Planet, and I owe you a bit of backstory here. And it might seem fairly complicated, so try to keep up. When I first started this podcast about 11 years ago or so, I was a bit worried about mixing my professional world with my running world, but I'm a pragmatist, right? I made the decision early on that if the podcast ever conflicted with my regular job, the regular job would win. And I had this nightmare scenario that haunted me of sitting in a meeting and someone saying, you're that guy. You had the time to do this stupid marathon report, but now explain to us why you couldn't deliver on XYZ, right? So I didn't want to, I didn't want to have that situation. But as an insider to our endurance lifestyles, I get it, right? I know what we do is additive to our careers. And what we do doesn't make us worse at our day jobs. It makes us better. And I believe that. But my beliefs weren't what I was worried about. It's like the old joke about marriage, right? Would you rather be right or be happy? And I would rather be able to pay my bills than be sanctimonious. I was never that guy. You know that guy? The runner guy, right? Because no one at work gives a crap about your training and your marathon times, okay? Don't be that guy or that lady. So I built a wall between what I did for a living and my podcast adventures, which confused and intrigued my listeners at the time. Here I am talking about airplanes and board meetings and hotel stays and clients and never sharing what I actually did for a living. And I would get questions like, what do you do for a living? So I made something up that fit the evidence. I told everyone that I was a contract killer, that explained all the travel, but that my cover job was as a yak farmer. And if you have the patience to go back and listen to those early episodes, you'll find all the yak farming jokes. But here's the thing. I have never in my life actually even seen a live yak. I just randomly picked 
the most absurd profession I could think of. So fast forward. Now, you, now you've got the backstory. So fast forward to a couple of weeks ago. I was in LinkedIn doing whatever it is you do in LinkedIn, mostly waste time, I think, and I came across Kate's profile. And here is this outdoorsy master runner person with an Ivy League education, and one of the jobs on her resume is, wait for it, yak farmer. So I could not resist, and I reached out to her and got her on for this interview which turned out to be apropos and extremely beneficial because she leads an organization that addresses the intersection of business and the environment. And this is a topic that I have done much rumination on. Why can't we, business-friendly people, be business-friendly and environmentally friendly at the same time? Why are those two things antithetical? Why? And I think you'll like our conversation, and I am continually grateful that this silly podcast thing has led me to engage with another outstanding individual who I would have never otherwise had the opportunity to meet. So it's all good. It's all good karma. In section one, I'm going to ruminate on the Boston Marathon some more. (laughs) In section two, I'm going to ruminate about rumination. And I hope you enjoyed my attempt to be funny with the Leadville race report. Sorry for the salty language. Hope the kids weren't listening. To make up for it, I'll give you a dad joke. So, you ready? You can let the kids listen to this. It's a dad joke. What kind of animal do you need to take with you on a trip to the Himalayas? Hmm? A yak of all trades. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. The Boston Problem. Almost every year, for the last two decades, I have run the Boston Marathon. I've grown up and grown older as Boston has evolved. From the early days as a race for a small number of club elites and professionals to today's strange monster of a city race trying to hang on to its purest roots. Well, how did I start running, said Boston. When I got back into running in my 30s, I followed that same track, that familiar track that many roadrunners do. I started small and then got hooked. And I started looking for bigger things to do and things that would verify the excesses of the habit. As a born and bred citizen of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, the Boston Marathon was hard to miss. At a time when long-distance running was confined to a smallish sub-demographic of aficionados, the city of Boston and its surroundings has always been in love with its Patriots Day event. Clearly, Boston as a city is culturally unique. You get the impression that Bostonians think they're better than everyone else. Indeed, rightly or wrongly, they consider themselves the hub of the universe. And this partially explains the love affair with the Boston Marathon by an urban populace that would rather stay inside and make snide remarks about other cities than go outside and run most of the time. 
Bostonians embraced the Boston Marathon because it was always special. It was always unique, always the place where those in-the-know insiders went. In the local world of Massachusetts running, when one says, are you running the marathon, no one asks which marathon. We all know what you mean. And in Boston, there is only one marathon that's important. It's just another one of those things that we culturally hoard and declare, this is ours and it is the best. <laughs> when I started running seriously again, it wasn't hard for me to find the Boston Marathon. It flows in the streets like the blood of the city hereabouts. And those old timers hold on to their Boston Marathon stories like a secret club handshake. But somewhere in the last 20 years, our local bragging rights race went viral. It was always global. Boston always attracted the elites and the special runners of the world, but it's an entirely different animal now. Every distance runner in the world is training for Boston. And you've always had to qualify for the Boston Marathon. There's no general admission option. You have to earn a place. And the way you do this is by proving that you can run a fast marathon time. And the way you prove it is to run another certified marathon in said time. And this is called a BQ or a qualifying marathon. There are a couple of big challenges to this. First, racing a qualifying marathon is hard. <laughs> you can't race a marathon every day or every week. You need time to recover from a marathon effort. And second, it takes a big investment in time and energy to make a good marathon attempt. And these two things run counter to each other to make each race effort overwhelmingly important. So if you have an injury, you don't have a good training cycle, you get a bad day, you have some bad weather, it can sideline your attempt and now you're stuck until your next opportunity. It takes most runners three to four months to prepare for a qualification attempt. And this means you only get two to four tries a year for normal people. And that's if all you do is train for marathons. When I first qualified, I was 34 years old. I needed a 310 qualification race. And at the time, there was so little interest in running the Boston Marathon, the organizers gave you the extra 59 seconds as well. So I really needed to run a 310.59 to be guaranteed an entry into that 1998 Boston Marathon. And I trained hard all summer. I ran a 309 and changed and was quite thrilled with myself. If I was 34 today, I would need to run a 305 or better, no 59-second buffer in there, to meet the 2020 standard. But it doesn't end there. That 305 would not necessarily get me into the race. The Boston Marathon is, is so popular and competitive now that meeting the standard does not guarantee an entry. You have to beat the standard. And last year, 7,384 runners made the standard but still didn't get in. The cutoff was 4 minutes and 28 seconds, meaning you had to run 4 minutes and 28 seconds faster than the qualification standard to get in. For 2020, they tightened the standards by five minutes to make up for this cutoff problem. And it's anyone's guess as to how much you'll need to beat the new standards by to get in. If you ask people what the qualifications should be, 
they will respond with whatever their current best pace is. The translation is basically, I should be able to run. <laughs> so Boston, a victim of its own success, now dances this slightly insane demarcation line of meritocracy. Bringing it all around to me, as I always do, like a boorish party guest, I find myself every year saying, I'm not going to run Boston again. The commitment is too big. I'm getting too old, etc., etc., etc. And then I run Boston again. The BAA has made side arrangements for people like me. <laughs> I still have to qualify, but if I have completed 10 straight Boston marathons, I am allowed to register early, so you don't have to worry about the cutoff problem. You still need to be qualified. And rumor has it, I cannot confirm nor deny, that if you have 25 straight Bostons, you get an automatic entry. Today, I'm out of qualification. I cannot seem to make the new standard. I ran two qualifying races, even at this new standard, for my last two Bostons. But this one, this one has been a stinker. I'm on my fifth try and miss as of last weekend after that last-ditch attempt. Now, to keep my streak going, I'm going to have to need uh, a waiver bib. And it's not just the, the tighter time standards, it's the new qualification window. In the old days, we would train for and run a qualification race in the fall, and this would qualify us for two years. This meant you could take your focus off of racing every so often and still have time to recover and requalify. With the new standards and the new windows, you not only have to run faster, you have to qualify sooner and more often. And this puts you on a constant hamster wheel of high-volume, high-quality road training that is very specific. And that's a recipe for fragility, and it also sucks a lot of the fun out of the sport. Now, I'm going to keep trying because it's what I do. <laughs> I, can't, I can't put it – I am what I am, as Popeye would say. I have no issues with the meritocracy, no issues whatsoever. Some small greedy part of me, of course, feels like something is being taken away, but that's not true. Boston has given me so much, and when it's my time to leave the party, I'll try to thank my hosts and, and be gracious. But until that time, I'll still see you out there. And now for today's featured interview. So, Kate, this is a funny story. I guess it's funny to me, so I guess that's all that really matters, right? Because it's my gig here. <laughs> I was in LinkedIn, and one of the things I do in my life is I hoard connections on LinkedIn like other people hoard Beanie Babies. So I have over coming up on 14,000 connections. But when I saw your profile, it said that you were an honest-to-good yak farmer. And that's funny because yeah. when I first started my podcast, I was a business guy, and I, I wanted to keep a wall between the endurance sports hobby and the business stuff, right? Because I was an executive. Mm -hmm. And when people said, what do you do? I'd tell them I was either a uh, contract killer or a yak farmer. So You're kidding. Oh, that's so, so funny. When I saw that you're an actual yak farmer, and then I saw what your program is, what you're CEO of, I was like, oh, this is so cool. This resonates with me on so many different levels. So uh, give us the 200 words on who you are and what you do and, and a little bit about what the 1% uh, for the planet is, and we'll get deeper into it. Sure. 
So I am the CEO of 1% for the Planet, which is a global nonprofit that was founded by Yvonne Chouinard of Patagonia. And our focus is on engaging companies in an incredible commitment to giving back to environmental nonprofits. So we have 2,000 members uh, all over the world. We're in 60 countries. And these are companies who are making a really significant commitment to give 1% of their annual sales to environmental nonprofits. And so it's a super exciting model that's only gained more and more traction as there is more and more interest in responsible business. And it's been great to be able to be part of growing this network that's really at the forefront of this movement. Yeah, yeah, it's super interesting. I want to talk to you about that. But before we get there, tell me three things that would surprise me about yak farming. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but just about everything. I guess uh, one thing would be that each yak has its own personality. So, you know, very distinctly. So some of them were kind of cuddly. Some of them were kind of not so cuddly, a little bit ferocious and kind of everything in between. So different personalities. Another is that there was one, the most likely and unpleasant of the acts that we bought happened to be named Kate, which is my name, which everyone <laughs> in my family took great pleasure in uh, and found really funny. So that's another one. And then I guess lastly, I would say that uh, on the first day that our yaks arrived, so we ordered the first sort of starter herd from Minnesota and they came on a truck. And um, I learned that a tradition here in Vermont is that when a new farm business starts and we brought the first yak to Vermont, all the old farmers in town sort of come out to welcome the new operation. So kind of out of the woodwork, these folks from around town came to kind of witness and, as it were, bless the arrival of our new community residents. That was great. So they came out of the woodwork to see you. Mm-hmm. Or to see the yak. That's great. Appropriately. <laughs> like, like a barn raising. So what are the products? What do you sell from yaks? Well, we do you sold, sell the... Yeah, we sold meat. So ours is a meat business. We actually had quite a Ooh, few people ask okay. about doing dairy. And if you met our yak, you'd understand why we were like, there's no way that we're doing dairy. Because our, our yak, we did a They were fairly wild, I would say, when we got them, and they got a lot more sort of domesticated, for lack of a better word, although they definitely were not docile cows by any stretch, but just milking them was really not an option. And we also, (laughs) we we were a a multi-family, there's three families in this business, and we all had day jobs. So milking, you know, while we did move the animals twice a day, every day, and had lots of sort of daily chores, we milking is a highly regular <laughs> commitment that none of us felt that we could make. So we just focused on a purely grass-fed uh, meat business. Yep, yep. So um, people would listen to you and say, well, here's this lady in Vermont farming yaks, but you're Princeton undergrad, MIT, Sloan, MS, you're a sharp cookie. And so how did you run into this 1% for the planet gig? Because it seems like a great fit for you and your capabilities. Yeah. So my dad did actually ask that question. He's like, hey, our family has spent years getting off the farm. What are you doing? He said it jokingly. He was very pleased. But all my professional career, which has been ongoing, the yaks were 
on top of that, in addition to, not instead of. So my professional career has really always been devoted to the environment. I was an outdoor educator, and then I went back to the Sloan School to really focus in on leadership and kind of be able to pivot from outdoor education into other organizations and have been in leader in environmental nonprofits ever since that time. So I came to 1% both through hard work, but also through serendipity, because at the time that I started, it happened to be located in my same small town here in Vermont. We've now moved the office to Burlington, but at the time that I started, just about five and a half years ago, we were still based here. So I kind of knew the team and was looking for a change. I had been at my then for 10 years as the executive director of another nonprofit and made the kind of walked across the street to start at 1% for the planet. And then we've, we've moved on from there. So it is a really great fit. I feel super grateful to get to do this work, um, very grounded in Vermont, but also very oriented toward a, a global network that's doing incredibly important work. Yeah. And if you look at these guys, the founders, they're no slouches either, right? Those are big companies and they drive a lot of the zeitgeist for the industry. So that's a great alliance to get started. It gives it a bit of a top down as opposed to just a a bottom up, right? Yeah. And although it's interesting too. So absolutely. I mean, Yvonne Chouinard and Patagonia have such street cred for lack of a better way to describe it. But they also have done that not by having a sort of top-down mentality. And so what's been really great to see is a lot of our network is a lot of younger companies that grow with us. And we have some increasingly large companies coming on board, but there is a spirit, I would say in the best sense, a kind of rebel spirit of like, we're actually going to do business differently because our planet needs for us to do that. And it's really awesome to be able to play a, a part in that. Right, Kate. And what I really love about what this is doing is I grew up with this, right? So I'm a business guy and I believe in the power of the marketplace, but I'm also an outdoors guy, right? My happy place is in the woods on the trail. Mm-hmm. And I could never resolve this. Why do these people think those are two different things, right? Why can't we find a way to get those two powers to work together? that business and environmentalism to work together. And I think you're doing that. So talk to me a little bit about how you're breaking down the barriers, that it's not Mm -hmm. that all or nothing paradox between business and the planet. I really appreciate you saying that because that's very much what we see is fundamentally, we believe it's actually good business to do the right thing for the planet. And certainly if you take the long view, the only way we're going to have a future economy is if we take good care of the planet now. And there are understandings of capitalism in which it would be like maximize the value now. So actually don't think about that long term. But fortunately, I think most people have a little more wisdom than that and see the true opportunity of it being good business to respond to the very strong consumer data showing that people want to spend their dollars on the companies who are doing the right thing. So, so it is a big opportunity now. And there are some ways in which it's an opportunity that are slightly unfortunate, I have to say. I mean, government actually should be playing a bigger role than it is right now because there are ways in which policy change and opportunities that only the government can drive would make a difference. But I think that's where our model also comes in because the way our companies through the 1% model are driving changes through their giving to environmental nonprofits. And many of those nonprofits are really leading the charge on advocacy work that is helping to build that 
environment and framework at the government level, whether it's local, state, or federal, or international, that helps to sort of create the larger ecosystem that we need in place to really do right by the planet that we all need to be sustaining because it's going to sustain us. Right. And um, tell me how this is different for than people just giving money to their favorite charity or favorite NGO or advocacy group. You guys do more than that. You're sort of uh, the ombudsman in this for the business community, right? Yeah, that's definitely one way to look at it. So we engage and work with our member companies, and we engage and work with our nonprofit partners. So we have a pretty rigorous vetting process for nonprofits. We also have extensive experience on how to develop really powerful partnerships, giving partnerships. So what we see and hear from our companies is that by working with us, they're not only able to give to a nonprofit, but they're able to do so in such a way that can be really strategically aligned, that can be developed in such a way that they can tell a really powerful brand story with it. So they really can kind of step into that opportunity to drive positive change that they also fully embrace as being good for their business. And we are all about enlightened self-interest. We want for our companies to feel like their giving is an integral part of how they are successful. And then I will say also, like beyond that, their direct giving, which is sort of the way that you engage in our model, our network of members and the way we bring people together is also a really important part of what we do. So we are constantly building connections between our members because they really benefit from having peers who are thinking about a lot of the same things in terms of how to run their businesses in really responsible and sustainable ways. So we do that in terms of lots of just one-off connections, but we host events regionally. We host a big annual summit. So it really is about building a larger movement that helps to drive change at scale. Right, because 1% is uh, 1% of revenue or sales, which is way different than 1% of profit, right? If you look at profit in, uh, let's say it's one of these retail, these clothing businesses you work with, they might have, what, a 20% profit if they're running the company really well. So you're talking 5x. If you're taking 1% of that revenue, that's 5x on the profit side. Sorry, I didn't mean to get all mathy on everybody, but it's a big commitment is what I'm saying because it's independent of whether or not you're making money, right? Yes, yes. And I really appreciate you bringing that out because it is really important. And there's often some confusion about that. People kind of can assume that it's profit, but it's very intentionally sales because the whole idea is that regardless of whether you've had a good year or not, the planet still needs you to be supportive. So it's a commitment that is much deeper than if we're doing well, we're going to give back. This is the rent we pay for our opportunity to live and work on this planet. That's how Yvonne Chouinard frames it. And we've found that to be a really powerful concept when people embrace that. And then it's like most hard commitments that we make, those are often the ones that are most galvanizing and most powerful for us as well. And we definitely see that with our members. Yeah. If you look at the other side of the house, some people see the environmentalists, that group of people sort of as chicken little fear mongers, right? Essentially, it's a message of scarcity, right? We have this scarcity. Mm -hmm. How do you change that message of scarcity coming from that side to a message of hope, of mission? Well, our approach is that we see everything in terms of solutions. We collectively, the broader movement, we know a lot of what we need to do to 
turn the corner towards the getting on the right track for the planet. So our focus, and we're very intentionally not a sort of scarcity, doom and gloom model. We take things seriously. and We believe that there's real urgency right now. And we believe the best way to act in the face of urgency is to act and to see the solutions and to take those steps to our motto uh, is be 1% better. So every company, every consumer, like we can all do that every day. So even when the going gets tough and the stakes are high and there's very real work to do, all of which is true, we can always take action every day. And that's what we're all about because we believe and we see that once people start doing that, so once companies start doing that, once they start showing their consumers that with every purchase, consumers can make a difference it's really powerful. And then you're like, all right, what else can I do? And you start to just really operate with that positive solutions mindset. And that's when we start to make change. And we also believe that we need to reach a much broader audience than, as you say, the sort of traditional, typical environmentalist. We are a big tent organization. We believe that everyone, regardless of their political background, regardless of X, Y, or Z has the opportunity and has and will benefit from a healthy and thriving planet. And so we're all about creating the opportunity for everyone to be part of driving positive solutions. Yeah, and it's good to be global too because this is a global thing, right? You can't make it a regional thing. It just that's not how the planet works, right? So that's good that you're global. But a couple of stories. I was out at Leadville, uh, the Leadville Trail 100, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it's just so beautiful out there. And looking around at the mountains in the high desert, right? And I could mm-hmm. just, we could strip mine all those mountains. I'm sure we'd find some great stuff, but there's got to be a way not to do that, right? You got to draw the line mm-hmm. someplace. It's definitely, you can't go all just rip up the environment and burn it and uh, use it because then you'll be left with nothing. It's just not a, uh, a good end game. Not yeah. only will we not want to do that, we don't need to do that. Like the cost for solar is coming down. The opportunities for renewable energy are exist. I mean, back to that solutions mindset, like we know we have the technology, we have the ability. It's consumer accessible now for us to make choices that do not require the destruction of those beautiful landscapes. So that's a really important opportunity for everyone to shift that mindset to know it's it's right there. We have the solutions. We don't have to do that. Say, I grew up, so if you remember where I am in New England, and you're in New England as well, when I can remember growing up, the rivers being so polluted from the paper factories that they'd be a different color every day um, where I live in mm-hmm. Massachusetts. And that's basically over the last, what, 50 years, that's all been cleaned up and changed, right? They're all beautiful now. So you can fix this stuff. It's not one of those things where you have to throw up your hand and say, well, it's too late. There's nothing we can do we can fix this stuff. And that that was just people doing that. That wasn't government. So it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's great to bring up examples like that because I think people can feel like, oh my gosh, can we make change? And there are a lot of examples, the rivers on fire and getting cleaned up, as you're saying. Yeah. I ran ran that race last year, the Burning River 100. Yeah, exactly. That was 50 Um, years ago today was the last time it caught on fire. Yeah. Interesting. Great. I didn't know that, actually. That's great. Yeah, so I think we do have, and New England has a bunch of them, the stories of changes. And it's not like change isn't hard. I mean, there are ways that that changes the economy. I mean, the fact that you're sitting in a former manufacturing building, at some point, there was a dislocation for people when that economy, that facet of the economy shifted. So I think we need to be really mindful of that. But there are people who have been really mindful of that and have 
thought of that very deeply and have developed ways to make these transitions can lead to healthy outcomes for people and planet. And I don't want to sound too Pollyanna. There are some hard things that are part of any transition, but all to say like solutions exist and transitions are possible. And I think it's really important to keep that in mind. All right. So I'm going to move you towards the exit. What's your vision for this over the next decade or so? Well, it's interesting you bring the next decade up because that like 10-year framework is what we, a lot of people are sort of pointing to as this is our window. (laughs) This is when we, those of us who are currently on the planet, get to make some key decisions and drive some key changes to fundamentally change the direction of climate change and to move some things forward relative to other key environmental issues. So we're actually doing some strategic planning right now and really seeing this, like we've got this really important shot right here to make change. So our vision is to just grow this movement significantly and to deepen the ways that we can drive impact with this movement of both companies and individuals. So we do have individual membership as well. And that's a way that people can, beyond their purchasing and other things, can actually be part of this movement of giving back in very direct ways. So go big, own that that we've got an important role to play in, in this urgent time and bring people together in recognition that we can make this change. That's what we're headed for. So that's a good segue. Where can people go to find out more or to see what you're doing? Yeah, our website is 1%fortheplanet.org, and one is spelled out, so O-N-E, all letters. And I would say one, um, for those of you who like to listen to podcasts, we do have a really great podcast called The Planet Service Announcement. It's our version of the PSA, and that you can link directly to that from our website. You can also uh, find it on Spotify and iTunes. So Planet Service Announcement. And Chris, I don't know if you can provide a link to that. Yep. But that's a great way to hear from more different voices, both from within and outside of our network, about just this opportunity for people from all different places, whatever your work is, whatever your particular skill or interest is, There are lots of great ways to be part of this movement for change. Okay. Well, just send me all those links. I'll include them. Okay. And it was uh, awesome talking to you today, Kate. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. You think too much. Problems with the ruminating brain. You're lying awake in bed, staring at the ceiling. The alarm clock will go off in 20 minutes. Thoughts spin through your mind in a whirl of dust and smoke. The hamster is on the wheel, spinning away. Your mind is at it again, trying to solve problems that can't be solved. Trying to put structure to things that are by nature chaotic trying very hard to make you crazy, and it's exhausting. The ongoing crisis at work is reviewed and renewed. Why can't you find a solution? Are you not capable? Are you not smart enough? Are you not working hard enough? It must be somebody else's doing, maybe an outside influence from the competition or the government or the economy. And this person laying next to me here, softly snoring, what the hell is going on there? Is it too late for me to fix this? Why do they expect 
things for me that I can't do. Am I incapable of holding up my end of the relationship? Should I try harder? Am I too needy? And those windows that are rotting out in the house, when can I find the time to fix them? Where am I going to get the money? I'm not taking out a loan. What about my finances? And then you roll over and feel that sharp pain in that joint or muscle and wonder if you can run that race. Have you done too much? What kind of cross-training can you work into your schedule to build that muscle back up? What kind of stretching? What if you can't run that race? Can you even do this anymore? Maybe you're just too old. Maybe it's time to get real with yourself and move that energy out of training and into something useful that benefits your career and your family. And on and on and on it spins until you get up and take a shower. But your ruminating brain chases you around all day like an open loop in a computer program, like an unsolvable puzzle always at the edge of your consciousness waiting to spin your mind into endless gyrations of stress. And like a rogue computer program, it chews up CPU cycles and I.O. and memory that you could be using for something else. It takes capacity away from your ability to execute. It drains your mental and emotional energy. It's an investment, but an unconscious investment, an unconscious investment in nothing. It causes stress and triggers all the anti-health reactions that come with stress. Tiredness, crankiness, lack of sleep, stress hormones, poor decisions, and all that other stress baggage. Ironically, by letting our ruminating brains spin on and on, we curtail our ability to execute well to solve the problems. We think too much. It is what has made us successful as a species. It is an evolutionary adaptation. If you can think your way around threats, you may survive. Figuring out how to get that next meal, how to avoid the lion's jaws, how to get that next mating opportunity by thinking it through and coming up with a plan gives us better odds of survival. But now, in today's world, too much rumination doesn't help your odds of survival. It just makes you unhappy. It can become a downward spiraling trigger to mental illness. It can cause you to make abrupt and poor decisions that negatively affect your life and the lives of those around you. It can cause you to give up when you should keep trying. It can make you assume things that just aren't true so that you are playing along to a mental script that is mostly fiction. All right, so how do we get out of this trap? How do we quiet the ruminating brain? And I suspect you already know what I'm going to say. The first step is to recognize what's going on. It is to notice those first signs of the ruminating brain, of that pattern turning on, recognize it for what it is, and move it out of your dinosaur brain and into your thinking brain. These open loops, they're patterns. Refuse to let it start down that well-worn track of thought, the one that starts with someone cutting you off in traffic and ends in you hating your life. As soon as you recognize the thought pattern of the ruminating brain, break the pattern with something else. Create your own positive pattern or different pattern or absurd pattern, whatever it is. Break the pattern. Practice breaking the pattern. Summarize and cut to the chase. Yeah, your work is difficult. Relationships are hard. Training is hard. That's the way life is, Bubba. Deal with it. Stop ruminating. There's no tidy package of a solution to these human situations. Accept it for what it is and move on. Ask the really good question, what's the worst can happen? 
what you'll find is the worst thing that can happen isn't really that bad. And then you can move on to empowering statements like, whatever happens, I can handle it. Now you're back in control, back in the driver's seat. And is what you're ruminating on even your problem? Or are you letting other people dump their shite on you? You don't have to do anything you don't want to. That shitty work situation is a choice you made. If you don't want to go, don't. At the end of the day, it is pretty much under your control, and you can do things differently if you want to. Empty out your brain. Open your journal. Write all that crap down, and you will take the power out of it. You'll give it a place to live, a safe place. You can park it. You can stop thinking about it. And, of course, calm your mind. And you knew I was going to eventually get here, didn't you? Yep, get yourself some silent time, calm your thoughts, whether it's meditation or prayer or any of those mind-calming practices. Just work it into your day. Practice being in the now. And finally, stop worrying and start doing. One of the best cures for the ruminating mind is to start doing something. And as it turns out, one of the best ways to solve all those intractable problems is to stop thinking about them and start doing something about them. Get up in the morning, do the best job you can with what you have, and things will look different tomorrow. Focus on the job and the process, not on the unknowable future outcome. And that's all I have for you. It's hard to carry around open-loop problems with no clear solution. That's not how our brains work. We want answers, and when things are cloudy, we start to ruminate. So here's your homework for the week. Break that rumination pattern and get on with living. We don't really have that much time, you and I, to screw around with this stupid stuff. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you have ruminated... To the end of the Run, Run, Live podcast, episode 4-415, which is in itself a small miracle. Two weeks after Leadville, I went ahead and ran the Wapak Trail 18-miler. I couldn't stop myself. I had a perfectly reasonable plan. I would do a couple of hard weeks with speed work and then treat the Wapak race as a long training run on tired legs. Right? Get ready for that marathon. And this was a wonderful idea on paper, but not so much in execution. What I had not considered is that going into a technical trail mountain race like Wapak with tired legs results in spending a lot of time with your face in the dirt. Yeah, if you don't lift your toes, you eat dirt. I probably fell seven times. <laughs> and then I shut it down. I had a week to taper hoping for a big bounce for the Beantown Marathon, which I ran last weekend. And I felt pretty fit and pretty strong for the race. But I, it turns out I only had 18 miles in me. Yep. I raced hard, and I hung in as long as I could, but I just did not have the legs. I don't know if I'm just under-trained, duh, or if I'm just over-trained, duh, I don't know. It was a six-loop course in a park, by the ocean in southern Mass, a pretty course with some gravel roads and a little hill in each loop. Uh, and that little hill started really getting to me by the fourth loop, and I just couldn't hold the pace. It was another classic Chris Russell 15-minute positive split, 
18 miles at, eight, at race pace, you know, and then eight or more at a uh, stumble. So I'm not terribly upset about it because I felt like I was close. You know, these last few race cycles, I haven't made my times, but every one of them, I sort of felt like it was within grasp and it could have gone either way. Yeah, that's how close it is. So next up for me is Bay State. I'm chilling out this week to recover. I was really beat up after this race last weekend. Like, I haven't been this sore in a long time. And I've got a very sore hip. And I still have that tendonitis in my butt. If I can get healthy, I'll load up on the long runs for a couple weeks and get some speed work in. And the challenge now is just staying healthy, right? I can tell I'm a bit overtrained and things are starting to break. And, uh, you know, as my wife would say, why don't you just stop? But, hey, you know, you know how it is. And now, dun, 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 I'm officially out of qualification. That's right. While everyone else is signing up for Boston this month, I am not able to. And if I want to run Boston this year, I'll need a waiver bib. And, oh, yeah, I signed up for another half marathon that with that pacing crew, the Beast Pacers. I'm going to go down to Nantucket with Gary two weeks before Bay State and pace the 150 half marathon group with him and it should be pretty and that's you know that's two weeks out from from bay state so that's a good workout good length good speed for that marathon prep and as usual i'm hopeful and i'm still plugging away but i'm only in my first year of this age group so i've got a pretty hard hill to climb here over the next three years got to qualify three more times at this level before they give me another 10 minutes and what about Ollie Dog? Well, this little puppy, he is growing like a weed. As I was writing this piece, he was crying to go out. And it was one of those puppy things. He just came back in. So I figured he was just bored and playing the in-out game, as puppies do. But also, as all good puppies do, he proceeded to march into the living room and show the rug that he did indeed really need to go out and was not kidding. So good thing we haven't got around to changing out that carpet yet. And he's a maniac, and when he's not chewing on you, he's stealing something of yours to chew on. He likes ice cubes and anything he's not supposed to have. Uh, he's going to be a great dog if I can ever break him. Right now he's sort of like a wild stallion, a wild animal. <laughs> but it's nice to have the pitter-patter of little hooves around the house again. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Hear that lonely whippoorwill. Okay, a little Hank Williams for you there, folks. Next up, the Boston problem. <laughs> 